Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, uh, good morning, Mo. I, I really, really need the cup of joe this morning because uh, <laughs> you wouldn't know being south of us, but we've had a bit of snow here. Uh, oh. And I spent, I, I spent an hour and a half shoveling yesterday and I've, it's starting to snow again. So uh, a little bit sore, a little bit tired. And I've got to go again, so I got to have a cup of joe. But uh, so uh, so glad to see you again this morning. And uh, at the end of the year, our last uh, recorded Ortho Joe, uh, and we saved the perhaps the most important topic for last. Uh, and you and I have been talking about this, and our journals have been working on it for a long time. So I'll let you introduce our special guest. Absolutely. And let me just say that we don't have snow right now in Ontario, but I can tell you it goes from warmish weather. To freezing cold so you just don't know what you're going to get when you wake up today i'm seeing sun and no snow but who knows that could change overnight yeah we are now uh, mark at just under uh, 282 million cases of covid 19 worldwide or infections worldwide with about five i think about 5.4 million deaths have been recorded uh, when we think about you know where it's been blasting through uh us india brazil still remain sort of the three most uh you know, uh, intense, um, I guess, countries in which we've seen this uh, happen. Now, we have some real, uh, I think, insight today with uh, uh, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of Infection Control at McMaster University and at St. Joe's Hospital, um, Dr. Zane Chagla. Zane uh, has been, uh, you know, really, really important, I think, in the Canadian landscape and helping us, you know, through evidence and cutting through what was this information epidemic and getting to the answers that we needed, uh, you know, for the last year. The one thing I will say to you is that um, Dr. Chagla was a co-author on, I believe, our very first COVID-19 contribution to um, the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery back in May of 2020, in which we actually talked about the novel coronavirus COVID-19. So um, without further ado, um, Zane, thank you so much for joining us. And I wonder if you could just briefly start off with just what's happening right now. What's the landscape? And I think, you know, the Omicron seems to be the word of the day. I wonder if you can give us a bit of an update and then we might have some deeper questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we, we had a good handle of what this pandemic was giving us in the beginning of November. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, at the end of November, we heard from brilliant South African and Botswanan scientists, just, uh, you know, identifying a variant of concern that had been spreading fairly rapidly in some regions, uh, particularly regions that had had significant pre-existing immunity uh, from natural infection. And, and, you know, at the time, we started noticing these cases showing up in other countries very quickly and growing in other countries very quickly. And now, you know, obviously, the global map, you know, three to four weeks after the identification of Omicron is essentially being overrun with Omicron across all settings. Um, what we know about Omicron so far is that it is probably the most transmissible variant. And it's, it's not necessarily uh, uh, the reproductive rate is higher simply because it is you know, more person-to-person transmission. There's a number of different factors. One is, uh, is viral loads in the upper respiratory tract and, and probably the minimal infective dose being much smaller than prior variants. Uh, 
But the other is the fact that there is some immune evasion. And uh, and so, you know, when we talked about variants like Delta, and Alpha and Beta, um, you know, once people were immune there through natural infection or through vaccination, there was a significant sterilizing protection uh, against getting reinfected. Not perfect, but, but you know, it was certainly there to, to lock off that pool. Whereas with Omicron, we are seeing rates amongst, you know, vaccinated and unvaccinated people being comparable uh, and rates amongst those who have had prior infections the uh, reinfections being higher than any other variant in the past. And so, you know, I think this is, you know, this accounts for a little bit more of that transmissibility is just the pool is much bigger to transmit. Uh, and, you know, places like Gauteng and in Johannesburg, um, you know, essentially saw huge swaths of their population being infected. Now, the, the promising signs here are through a number of laboratory studies looking at things like uh, entry into lung alveolar cells, um, tropism for certain receptors, uh, Syrian hamster models, really showing less lung inflammatory changes and more upper airway disease than anything else. And, and a symptom complex through a number of different screening networks that really is suggesting more of an upper respiratory tract infection. Uh, and, and certainly across regions, we are seeing a lower severity as compared to um, other variants in the past, particularly the Delta variant. Um, but, you know, the, the counterpoint to the concern is just the sheer number of people getting infected, and particularly vulnerable individuals, people without an effective immune response, people with multiple medical conditions, you know, a, even a less transmissible, less fatal variant, sorry, a, a more transmissible but less fatal variant, if it just spreads through the population quickly, is going to hit some of these populations where it never hit before. And, you know, certainly that does create some, some concerns moving forward. With vaccine rates around the world being about 54%, at least people having at least one uh, vaccination, there's been a push towards getting this third booster dose. Zane, I mean, is, is the third booster more protective? Um, it sounds like it may have some variable uh, effectiveness here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we start looking at, um, uh, neutralization study in the lab, so, so antibody levels, you know, to, to pseudoviruses or virus models, um, we do see antibody levels much higher after the third dose. And even the generation of Omicron-specific anti-neutralization antibodies, uh, even in the context of three doses of a vaccine, of an mRNA vaccine to uh, the original COVID-19 strain. So fairly remarkable that you can go through class switching and, and really have very high affinity to Omicron uh, antibodies generated from a vaccine that, that lacks some of the mutations that are within Omicron. When you start looking at clinical data though, it becomes a little bit more cloudy. And so the United Kingdom a couple of weeks ago presented their experience and, and their vaccine efficacy suggesting that yes, uh, 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 another dose of vaccine uh, on top of two doses of vector-based or mRNA-based vaccine would give you higher efficacies towards prevention in the 70% range. Um, However, in looking closely at the data with more experience with Omicron over the last uh, few weeks in the United Kingdom, it does seem like a temporizing effect. And so uh, that, that, you know, you do see after that first, that third dose is given, uh, as time goes on, the efficacy does start coming down, which is a phenomenon that wasn't even seen with other variants like Delta. Um, but, you know, again, it is suggestive that, you know, a third dose may offer significant protections against severe disease hospitalization, but from a sterilization standpoint, from reducing transmission, 
there is a baseline risk that again it does become lower and lower over time rather than necessarily being a permanent situation with the third dose Zane, so uh our our listeners and and uh, observers are definitely appreciative of your expertise and i i know as a scientist you're you're loath to do this but what what would you think would be the natural outcome with omicron uh in the next variant what 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 seems to be the most reasonable uh yeah. prediction yeah i mean look you know the reality of the situation is delta was a very difficult period to control we saw places like the united kingdom and new zealand sorry the australia and new zealand using strict contact tracing genomic surveillance militaristic case and contact finding and still couldn't control delta yeah. uh, there is data from ontario suggesting there are 7.7 times more secondary cases from an omicron case than a delta case so you can imagine how hard it is for case and contact management public health restrictions etc to control this gauteng uh, uh, the region that first described this did see their peak very quickly, three weeks after uh, the the initial emergence of this variant in populations, uh, and now we're coming down both in terms of cases, hospitalizations, deaths, and and uh, and percent positivity. The reality of the situation is is what got to that point wasn't necessarily any particular intervention other than you know a huge amount of the population developing post infectious immunity, meaning that a huge amount of the population was just infected within two to three weeks. The other you know, important part of this, and there was a study, a preprint that just was released yesterday, looking at people who were infected with Omicron and prior variants and what that actually meant um, is that you know they are seeing antibody levels to variants like Delta and Beta and Alpha being very, very high amongst people that got infected with Omicron. And so the hint here is, you know, this uh, the, the infection with Omicron, particularly with you know a lot of mutated spike proteins, plus probably some hybrid immunity from vaccines, you know, really seeds a population with high level immunity, not only to the original COVID nineteen strain, which is in the vaccines, but to variants in the future. And so, you know, again, the the bad news is we're likely all going to experience an Omicron exposure or infection. The good news is, is coming out of it at the end of it, that immunity that does get built into the population is probably going to have significant effects for the future to come. Can I ask you, Zane, yeah, further to uh, Mark's question, you know, if we go back to that, you know, general statement that about half half of the world has received some form of vaccination. But when you look at the disparity between developed and developing, you know, it's like 54 percent, maybe under 10 percent for low middle income countries. Is that where, like, you know, we talk about managing variants and managing future variants. Like, what is the solution globally um, or, or what's being purported? Or are we always going to have variants and maybe the next variant will just be less problematic? You know, Omicron seems to be very, very infectious, but it doesn't seem to have the same degree of hospitalization ICU demand. Is, yeah. Are we going to see this becoming an endemic? Like, what, what do you envision? Yeah, I mean, you know, number one, you know, again, the, the evolution of these variants is in, in areas and regions that we're seeing where large populations are being protected by natural immunity. And so the barrier then for a variant to emerge is a mutation that, you know, evades natural immunity. And, and we saw that with Delta and we're seeing that with Omicron. 
Uh, and we're seeing these emerge in places like India and, and you know, somewhere in probably sub-Saharan Africa, maybe not South Africa, that, you know, these are areas where vaccines have not penetrated or had not penetrated well. Uh, and you you really had natural immunity. That was the, the you know, the, the protection for the population. So, you know, I, I think in, in, in reality, you know, these are evolving in large populations. You know, Omicron, there is some suspicion of someone that was not particularly immune competent, that was unable to clear the virus, that then, you know, didn't die, but generated a, a lot of mutations in a single string that then went back into the population. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, a problem in this standpoint is if you're, you're not dealing with vaccine disparities, if you don't have access to treatment for these patients, particularly in low-income areas, you know, you may see this evolution over and over and over again. And so, you know, there is a chance that something else comes back into the population. But, you know, these studies looking at Omicron and cross-neutralization really are uh, uh, promising in the sense that the effects of, unfortunately, the population or a large part of the population getting Omicron, uh, you know, will have protective effects in the future. We obviously don't want the effects of it now. Um, but uh, but you know you know we will see probably some development of immunity even to variants that's that's from uh, from Omicron in, in itself. And I think something that gets also lost in this is that you know there's still been 281 million cases, and different than quote the flu, this issue of what I guess people call long COVID now, which is these mm-hmm. you know, persistent mm-hmm. symptoms that happen in a proportion. I, I guess I don't know the option number. I, I thought it was in the, the double digit numbers, but whatever that is it becomes a lifelong battle for some individuals. And I think that's what makes this particularly scary, right? In terms for individuals saying, I just don't want to get it because I don't want to be that individual who gets quote long COVID. Can you speak a little bit to this issue of, you know, persistent symptoms that go on and on after COVID? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there, there are different kinds of buckets of people that, that, that develop symptoms after COVID-19. There are neuropsychiatric symptoms, there's persistent symptoms in their COVID-19. There's, you know, the, what we used to call uh, myalgic encephalitis or, or or chronic fatigue syndrome and that subset of patients. And they're patients that with the severity of their disease are left with end organ dysfunction after their COVID-19, lung fibrosis, renal dysfunction, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, again, part of long COVID is really sorting out exactly um, you know, what bucket these people fall into is they're probably different physiologic processes at play. You know, lung fibrosis is caused by chronic scarring. There's some thought that even some of the chronic fatigue may be due to, you know, viral reservoirs that are ongoing and, and you know, chronic low-grade inflammation. Neuropsychiatric complications may be due to some neurologic dysfunction associated with COVID-19. Uh, and, and, you know, again, as much as we're not resourced in healthcare and being able to deal with patients, you know, rehabilitative services, um, you know, uh, psychiatric services, you know, those are those are not well funded services as well. And and you know, especially as we're going to probably be dealing with hundreds of thousands of people with these post infectious complications. You know, there is a need for us to strengthen these services that have largely been dwindling over the last few years and and be able to offer holistic, multidisciplinary solutions to get people back to normal, back to normal function in, in that sense. Is it possible? Sorry, Mark, I'm going to jump in with one more because yeah. it's, it's on my mind when I think it just got me thinking about this. So because I'm just generally worried about it, actually. Um, so, you know, 
Um, you've seen uh, large, large pharmaceuticals come out saying with oral antivirals, I think it was the monoclonal antibodies that have been targeted, you know, whatever the products are, and I suspect you're aware of all of them. Is that a potential to say, listen, if you get it and you take something, um, that may be a way to prevent even long COVID. I mean, it's one thing to recover and not go into hospital and ICU, but it's another thing to say, we might actually be able to prevent the long-term symptomatology. I can see that being a huge, huge benefit um, yeah, taking an there's, there's, yeah. there's really interesting stuff, even yeah. with vaccines, right? So, so yeah. you know, reducing severity probably has some effects on, yeah. on long COVID, especially yeah. if you have a critical illness, reducing critical illness. There's some data suggesting that people who get vaccinated after their COVID-19 actually have reduction of their long COVID symptoms. Uh, and that may be a reflection of potentially triggering an immune response to deal with viral reservoirs, lowering chronic inflammation and that type of thing. Um, but absolutely, again, lowering how much inflammation and how much, you know, uh, uh, tropism for this disease for other tissues outside the lung is probably going to help with, with reducing these symptoms. And so, you know, monoclonal antibodies, at least we see in people that get monoclonal antibodies, their symptom complex gets much better, much quicker than people that don't get monoclonal antibodies. In fact, it's, it's fascinating in the clinical trial, there were more adverse effects in the placebo group than the monoclonal antibody groups uh, because of the fact that people felt so much better after getting monoclonal antibodies as compared to getting placebo. And similarly, I think these oral antivirals that come to the market, again, reducing chronic inflammation, reducing the spread of the virus throughout body systems outside of the respiratory tract is likely going to have significant effects on, on kind of getting people to recovery, making sure their symptoms come down, not setting off that inflammatory cascade that then leads to critical illness and hospitalization. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of promise and hope in, in therapeutics coming down the pipeline. Uh, it really, I mean, I, I think the biggest part of therapeutics right now is how to administer them more than anything else. You know, it's it's not as simple as these drugs are available. It's making sure the appropriate people can get tested, making sure those people have someone that is looking at their test results, making sure people have access to these medications that they can deliver, that people are counseling people with these medications. And all of that being done within five to seven days of symptom onset, which is a very, very short window for these to work. Yeah, thanks so much. That's great. Yeah. And with with that, I'm sure you're incredibly busy. And we we'll, we only have one more uh, issue I'd like you to comment on. I, I just opened my uh, most read articles for JAMA in 2021, and it turns out it was the randomized control trial on the effectiveness of Invermectin done in Colombia, which basically showed uh, no effect. So my question is, I wonder if you could comment on the interface between social media and science. And it have, have in fact, you in Canada done a better job than we have in the U.S. about dealing with misinformation. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating you know world that probably history books will write about for decades to come, and and generations will study in terms of what the effects are. You know, I I can't say Canadian social media and U.S. social media are separated. What happens in the United States happens in Canada. There are patients here that you know want to access ivermectin. Uh, aggressively, you know, based on the experience of Joe Rogan and others in the United States. You know, I think, you know, Canadian public health officials have tried to put more full tilt into, and, and you can see it, you know, in, in vaccine rates in, in Canada, for what they're worth, are, are much higher than the United States right now, which really is that, you know, public health trust and, and being able to reach out to people and, and meet them on their level. 
Um, but absolutely. I mean, you know, the rise of social media has helped with us being able to disseminate information across the world very quickly uh, to deal with patients, to deal with, you know, uh, uh, emerging threats, to deal with things like Omicron, that everyone's on the same page very quickly. And we're learning from the scientists in South Africa. But completely at the same time, the rise of misinformation on social media has caused antagonism in healthcare, has led to people really being you know, uh, being put into buckets like vaccinated and unvaccinated that, you know, people that choose to take ivermectin and people who, who think ivermectin is, you know, horse medicine. And the reality is there are gray zones of all of this. And, and I think, again, you know, it, it is a very fascinating sociologic experiment, um, but, you know, has lasting effects. And, and at the end of the day, you know, our, our goal as healthcare providers is just to make sure our patients recover with every tool that we have. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I think for us as healthcare providers, we have to stay a step ahead of the social media in the sense that, you know, uh, as we, you know, we never judge patients, but give them the benefit of the doubt and, and we just, you know, offer them what we think are our best opinions and treatments and, you know, allow them to make informed decisions based on their worlds. Well, well stated, Zane, and thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us uh, in our audience today. Thank you so no much, problem. Zane. Really appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. All the best, guys. Be well. Take care.